Well, welcome to Cedar Home. Uh, glad that you're here. I've met a number of new people this morning. I hope that you felt like it was like your hundredth time here this morning, that you're part of a family, even though it, you might be visiting or attending for the first time. We're glad that you're here. And I would invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to the book of Hebrews. I've been preaching through the book of Hebrews now for about three months, and we are today uh, in chapter six and the first eight verses. And if you wanna catch up, if you feel that desire, I do believe they're online, and uh, you can go and listen there. And uh, uh, if you wanna wanna do some catch-up work. Um, Father, we uh, are grateful for the rain and the sunshine and all the weather that you bring our way. But most of all, we're grateful for your word. Um, it's li- alive, that's how you describe it, it's alive. And so take that living document that you inspired and speak to our hearts in intimate, powerful, and clear ways for your glory and for our blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you do like I did this week, and because and, I just had an idea to do this, um, look at all the great unfinished architectural projects in history, you would see that all around the world, there were great, 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 great plans for architectural, for buildings, architectural plans, uh, magnificent, opulent, you might say, um, ideas about a building that, that never got finished. But if you were to do that for just the United States and not go all the way around the world, you would, because I did, run into a, a building called the Chicago Spire. The Chicago Spire, and I wanna read to you what happened to the Chicago Spire. Um, The Chicago Spire was a skyscraper project in Chicago that was partially built between 2007 and 2008, so you can probably guess what happened, right? Um, Before it was canceled. Located at 400 North Lakeshore Drive, it would have stood 2,000 feet high with 150 floors and had been the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. When originally proposed as the Fordham Spire in July 2005, the design had 116 stories, included a hotel, condominiums, and was topped with a broadcast antenna mast. The building was designed and spearheaded by Spanish architect engineer Santiago Calatrava and Chicago developer Christopher T. Carley in the Fordham Company, of the Fordham Company. On March 16, 2006, the Chicago Plan Commission unanimously approved the initial design of the building. On November 4th, 2014, a court ruling brought the original development plan and the extended litigation over the nine-year-old project to a close. Developer Garrett Kelleher signed over the property location to the project's biggest creditor, Related Midwest, who announced that they would not build the spire and release their plans for the site. And I I cut out a picture of it. I didn't get it to the screen, but the picture of what it was supposed to look like is just crazy, wild, uh, creative. It's a spire that goes up 110, 150 floors, and then it shows what actually happened. There's a foundation with a hole in the ground. It's all it got, and I, I thought about that because I'm relating it to what we're gonna talk about today because um, the same story takes place spiritually with these this church in Italy that the writer of the Hebrews is writing to. 
okay? Um, they haven't really finished what God had planned for their lives. They didn't grow to the people that God had desired them to be. And God didn't save them and establish a foundation through Christ and then expect them to call it quits once they got in the kingdom of God. He didn't want that for them. He wants them grown and greatly used in his kingdom. That's, that's, that's the same tr is true for us. He just doesn't want us to get into the door of the classroom of the Christian life and just sit as close to the exit as, as we want. He wants to, us to go all the way in and take a seat in class and try to get to the front row if possible. And that was, the, that was the point of our sermon last week on the danger of spiritual immaturity, part one. And the whole idea of that is, is that if we're, gonna, if we're gonna escape the danger of spiritual immaturity, we gotta get into God's word. And not just, you know, on a surface level, but deep into the meat of God's word. And the, the word for uh, uh, us last week was, don't stay milk drinkers, turn into meat eaters. Because they were into the milk of the word, but they weren't into the meat of the word. And so we, we really understood that if we're going to deal with the condition of spiritual immaturity, but we want to grow, we need to get into the meat of the word and into depth into God's word and let it get into us and, and grow us up. Now today, we're going to continue that same idea of escaping the dangers of spiritual immaturity, part two, here in Hebrews 6, 1 through uh, 8. And the basic admonition is found in the first part of the first verse. So if you could go there, and your Bibles are up on the screen behind me, it's the writer to the Hebrew church in Italy says this, therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again, and then he names some foundations. That we don't want to keep on the foundational aspect of our walk with God, we want to grow up in our walk with God. Now, remember, this is written 65 AD. So they've had decades after the death of Christ to grow and to know more, but they're still in the ABCs and they haven't gone on. And so the writer here, his basic motivation is for us, for them and us, is to leave the ABCs about the Christian faith and move on from the foundational truths that we were taught about Christ and go on to spiritual maturity. And I want us to look at four additional steps to last week, besides getting into the in-depth word of God, getting in-depth into the word of God, and go to four more, four more powerful steps, necessary steps, for us to not remain spiritually immature or wherever we're at to continue on in our maturity. There's four. Number one, we must advance. We must advance. The great World War II G General Patton said, there's only one way to win a war, and that's to keep advancing. And it's true. We must advance. Now, we're going to look at the list here, and this list may be referring to some Old Testament concepts because these were Jewish Christians for the most part. And uh, they, some of them were weakening and kind of backsliding and, uh, and wobbling because of persecution and trials. And so the writer writes these things as an incentive so they'll truly turn to Christ with all their hearts. 
Now, it's also likely that it was written to a number of uh, the saved Jewish believers of this church who needed to go on to maturity in Christ. Not just those that were kind of slipping back, but they just say, hey, I want to grow. Maybe that's you today. You say, you know, Pastor, I just want to grow. I, I don't want to stay still. I, I don't want to be a baby Christian now that I've hit my 20th year of, of being a Christian. I want to go on. Okay, so what do you do? You advance, okay? So let's look at the list that they need to advance from, to go past the ABCs, to get out of the new believers class, to go on to Christianity from Christianity 101, to leave Operation Christianity Head Start, you know, and to go on into Christian maturity. Because God doesn't want us to sit as close to the exit as we can, but go in as far as we can. Okay, number one, uh, okay, we're going to go through this list in verses 1 through 3. Let me read the list, okay? Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, uh, not, not laying, again, the foundation of, one, repentance from acts that lead to death, two, of faith in God, three, instruction about baptisms, four, the laying on of hands, and five, the, re- or five, the resurrection of the dead, and six, eternal judgment. Move on from those, he says. Okay, that's the list. Now that doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue to know more about these dear truths and wonderful truths. Doesn't mean that when he says leave, okay, because that's a powerful word, that word leave here. But what he's saying, and he's saying you can't exhaust the treasures of these things, okay, ever, they're precious, but every Christian should not be satisfied with the basics here. Leave, and the word leave again is forsake, put away, put aside, abandon, separate yourself from. Go on past these basic elementary teachings about Christ. Go past the ABCs. In other words, grow up spiritually. Graduate from spiritual kindergarten. Okay, let's look at him. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. Now, this probably meant go on from useless self-righteous, self-dependent, self-empowered deeds. Whether it's for your salvation or sanctification, growth in Christ, move beyond those. And you know, he's writing to Jews that have become Christians for the most part. So he's saying move beyond self-sufficiency, okay? From things that, that are just dead. Because anything done out of our flesh in the name of Christ is not alive, it's dead. I can tell you that from experience. I came out of Judaism, I understand the self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-promoting, self-reliant lifestyle, and God has taken a lifetime to purge me of that to grow in Christ. And that's true of all of us. Move on from dead stuff. Go to live stuff, Christ. And then a faith in God. In other words, the faith that brought you your salvation. Move on. You know, there are people that get saved over and over again. Over and over again. We don't see that so much in our denomination, but a lot of times people just keep getting saved and, and, and the writer is saying to them, look, quit getting saved, you're saved already. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not of works, so that no man could boast for you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. Go on to good works which he planned for you to accomplish. And I think that's an important thing for us to ask ourselves. Not am I 
gonna, what do I do to, to be saved if we're already a Christian, but what do I do in terms of good works? That's a good question to ask. And then he goes, instruction about baptisms. Now, that word could also be translated washings, plural, washings or baptizomas, it's baptized. Go on for baptisms. This could possibly mean a combination of Old Testament Jewish ceremonial washings that were used for ritual cleansing that were needed to be forgotten and or Christian water baptism that needed to be done only once after conversion. Jesus said, you're done with that, Uh, move on. Can you imagine the same person uh, being baptized every baptismal service? So you know a lot of times they say, okay, um, there's gonna be a baptismal service in a couple months and if you wanna be baptized, uh, you know, come and we'll instruct you in what it means. And, 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 and John and Jane Doe do that. And amen, and we're all excited because they're Christians, they've been baptized. And then two or three months later, we go, we're gonna have a baptismal service. And uh, we want those of you that want to be baptized as an outward sign of your inward faith. And guess who shows up? John and Jane Doe. And so you're the pastor and you go, well, okay. And then, and three or four months later, you go, we're gonna have a baptismal service. And if you want to be about sign up, and guess who signs up? John and Jane Doe. You say, that's ridiculous. And that's what he's saying. Go past your baptism. Okay, move on in your Christian walk. Okay, enough already. Leave the ABCs. And then we have the laying on of hands. If you want to grow spiritually more mature and and escape the danger of spiritual immaturity, uh, just leave the laying on of hands. Now under the old covenant, the person offering a sacrifice put their hands on the, sac- on the sacrifice. The writer here says, forget that. You don't need to do that anymore. You're identified with Jesus Christ. Okay, you don't need to keep laying hands on a sacrifice. Move on. By one sacrifice, we have been made perfect forever for those God who has made holy. Hebrews 10.10, we'll get to that ultimately, okay? Now communion reminds us of that that we'll be taking here shortly. But you don't need to do laying on of hands anymore. You say, well, what about when we commission missionaries or when we pray over someone? He's not talking about that. But move on from those old customs and into Christ. You with me so far, amen? Okay. And then the resurrection of the dead. You say, resurrection of the dead? Can we ever exhaust that? No. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know, the Old Testament had a limited amount of information about the resurrection of the dead. But there are some powerful passages on, or verses on the resurrection from, of the dead in the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel 12, one through three. I mean, wow. Job has a few things to say about the resurrection of the dead, both of humankind and others of Christ. But so the writer probably means leave those few things and move on into the vast reservoir of the truth about the resurrection of Christ and your resurrection and the resurrection of the living and the dead at the end of time. Don't stay in the dark about this. Feast on it. And you say, well, don't all New Testament era believers do that? No, they don't. 
And not all people in churches try to plumb the depths of the resurrection. Not only Christ, but theirs with Christ, now and forever. I mean, Paul, what did he call the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15? You're fools. Literally, check me up on it. You're fools, you don't know enough about the resurrection. Move on from that. And then eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. Now, like the resurrection of the dead, not a lot is said in the Old Testament about eternal judgment, but I refer you back to Daniel chapter 12, verses one through three. It is a riveting passage on the resurrection of the dead. But there's not overall a ton about it there. Okay, what he's saying here to these these somewhat immature believers is, move on from this, those few passages. Go deep into what judgment is all about. Not like, uh, I'm really into judgment, and I just love talking about hell. That's not even at all what he means here. He says there's lots of things that, that is said about judgment. There's a believer's judgment that will be judged for our works, and not our salvation, but our works, and how were we, what kind of stewards were we of what God gave us on this earth? And then there's the white throne judgment in Matthew 25, and then there's probably the same one, that same white throne judgment in the book of Revelation, but get to know it more. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews mentions it in Hebrews chapter two, where he says, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after, after this the judgment, Hebrews 9.27 rather. And so move on, go on, advance. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but when you think about the list that I just read, and I'm talking to myself too here, are we pursuing a deeper spirit-led knowledge of these areas? That's what he's saying. That's how you deal with the danger of immaturity, not just by getting into the word of God, but get, getting into more knowledge of what this is talking about. And then secondly, if we're gonna uh, deal with the dangers of spiritual immaturity, we gotta rely, not just advance, but rely. Man, if I was to say, if someone was to say, Mitch, what's the, the main word that you would describe the Christian walk? To be, I would say, rely. Can you say that word to me together? Rely. On who? On God, on his strength to make us more spiritually mature. Some believers never kinda come to an understanding of that. It's, uh, I, I got in by grace, but I'll take it from here, Lord. I'll call you if I need you. I'll just drive down the freeway of life and if I need a spare tire, I'll just open the trunk and pull you out. How well does that work? Never works for me. Because my spare tire is flat too, you know, so I mean, it just doesn't work. But we need to rely on God's strength. 24-7, second by second. I've learned, you know, so each day we must rely on God's strength. I'm going, day? How about like, minute the older I get the more I have to rely on God now there are two valid points in one here and I'm going to go with the second one first first of all will our reliance on God be high on our spiritual priority list let's look at verse three and God permitting we will do so that is will we make spiritual priority in our lives 
Uh, will we make reliance on God a spiritual priority in our lives? The writer, I love the way the writer says, we will do so. Talk about, um, I don't know how I say it, determination. Wake up every morning saying, I am determined to rely on God and not myself to figure this whole thing called life out. I don't know about you, but that works better for me. It works better. Okay, it shows determination. I mean, if I ask you a question about where on your list of priorities does the spiritual growth fall, is it a priority to rely on God, that is? Where would you say that is on your list of priorities? Relying on God. Because God wants it number one. And then secondly, will, 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 will we rely on, will it be a priority, but will we rely on God? It's gotta be a priority to rely on God, but will we rely on God? Because if you go to the first one, it says, and God permitting, we will do so. In other words, and I just kind of said it before, but without God's help, we cannot grow past spiritual immaturity. No God, no growth, period. I don't care how spiritual we look, I don't care how, how many times we attend church or a Sunday school or a community group or ad infinitum. If God isn't the one we're depending on, we aren't gonna grow. We need strength to grow. Jesus said this, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me or remains in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit for without me you can do nothing. Oh, you Bible scholars, wow, awesome. Let's go to a third step. If we really wanna break the barrier of spiritual immaturity, no matter where we are, I mean, let's just say you're in the upper echelon, you wanna go higher, or you're down here right now on a foundational level, and you wanna go higher, you need to advance, go past the basic truths. You need to rely, and then you need to beware. Beware. Verses four through six. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now let me make an opening comment here. Um, This warning, to beware, so to speak, is considered by theologians, scholars, commentators, teachers, and preachers to be one, if not the most difficult set of verses in the entire New Testament, maybe the whole Bible, to interpret. Now, aren't you glad you're here this morning to get the right view? (laughs) Not one single amen from that, okay. Wayne Gruden, Grudem, who is a, a, a really sharp theologian that you would, could all trust, wrote 50 pages alone on verses four and five in his covering of this. Now the controversy mostly centers around the words fall away in verse six. And, and we're gonna try to, f- to define what does it mean or who's being talked about here. And after a lot of reading and studying and praying, I think I would boil it down to three three views of what this very difficult warning passage means here as supported by scholars, and we'll just go through them, and I'll kind of let you know where I fall 
But can we say this at the beginning of this whole thing? Please, let's not make this a test of fellowship. Amen? Amen. They're good, godly people that hold these views separately. They each hold these views. Some more than others, but let's not make it a test of fellowship. Let's just let the Holy Spirit speak to us the way he wants to. Okay, number one, um, one school of thought of the three that I just you know, distilled it all down to was these are people who are saved in the, this little church in Italy, but they can lose their salvation through sin. They're saved, but they can lose their salvation through sin. Let's read this. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Okay, they're saved, but they can lose their salvation. This was what falling away here refers to in verse six, according to this school of thought. It's called the Arminian view or Arminian theology, okay? And those here, people who are talking about, were Christians. Okay, they had been enlightened, they'd seen the light of Christ, they tasted the heavenly gift of Christ, experienced Christ, um, they had shared in the Holy Spirit. In other words, they had become host to the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of God, taste meaning experienced the goodness of God, and the powers of the coming age, miracles. But then, because of their sin, they fell away. They lost their salvation. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time in this uh, view for a, a variety of reasons, one in particular, but I wanna just share with you why quickly. Number one, which sins? Kinda keeps you guessing, doesn't it? I mean, you're always looking behind your bat. Oh, I wonder which one I did to cause me to lose my salvation. Which ones? Doesn't specify. Um, and the scriptures say where sin abounded, grace much more abounds. Amen. So, you know, I mean, gotta deal with that one. Um, no way back once you fall away. But then I read 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anyone ever not use that? Um, here's why I think that um, I don't hold to this view because of so many verses that talk about our security in Christ. I mean, I just did a like 60 second, well, a little bit longer than that, but just a short burst of time to study our security in Christ that once saved, we're saved for good uh, and I came up with 15 haymakers that just blew my socks off. I'm gonna share a couple, with them, a couple of them with you. Hebrews 10, 14. By one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. How long is forever, by the way? Yeah, forever. Thank you for answering correctly. Because there is no other answer, but I was kind of afraid, you know. Um, 
John, uh, Jesus in John chapter 10 said, no one once they're one of my sheep will snatch them out of my hand. Romans chapter 8 says, neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things nor present nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. But I want to read one to you in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5 that I particularly enjoy. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope Okay, so you got the new birth, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can possibly be taken away if we sin, that can never perish, never spoil, never fade, kept in heaven for you who through the faith are shielded by God's power into the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's kept. Nothing's gonna take it away. And that's kind of why I just kind of put this aside. Let's go to a second one here. And uh, Holy Spirit, help us. Because these are very profound uh, truths and different interpretations. The second one is that the person is saved, like they were in the Arminian view, but they're secure in their salvation. And we believe that, according to the whole context of the Bible from A to Z. But this group says there are people who are saved, and we could go through that whole list again, but you heard them in verses four through six. But unlike the Arminian point of view, we are secure in our salvation. Once saved, we're saved, okay? We don't get saved by our good works, and we don't stay saved by our good works. So what does that thing in verse, that, those words in verse six fall away mean then? Okay, and to these uh, interpreters, and boy, there are some good ones, uh, uh, godly men that do this, interpret it this way, this is stating that at, this is a hypothetical situation in which if a true Christian could fall away and lose their salvation, it would be impossible for them to be brought back to repentance because of the hardness of their hearts. And they would be joining the camp of those who could be called the crucifiers of Christ and those who subject him to public disgrace. They do not believe in him. But since this can't happen according to uh, the um, doctrine of e the, the perseverance and eternal security of the saints, since that we are secure in our salvation, since it can't happen, keep growing spiritually. It's kind of a theoretical or hypothetical warning to say it can't happen, but use it as an incentive to grow more mature. Here's what's the problem with this one, at least from my study. The question arises, why would the writer use a hypothetical situation for something that isn't true and can't happen in the first place? Because you can't lose your salvation, okay? These people, in other words, these people were saved, the same as people in the Arminian view, but when it refers to falling away, it is being used, as one person put it, a timely illustration to motivate them to continue to grow, but in fact, it's no real warning at all because it can't happen. Are you sufficiently confused yet? <laughs> let's go to, maybe you are, so let's go to the third one, okay? Um, the third one here is, did someone say amen when I asked that? Okay. It's the person that is appearing to be saved. And by the way, there's no reason why you can't do further study on your own. Okay, 
This is the person that, or people that are appearing to be saved, Christians, but never were saved at all. We can't lose it, but they never really had it. They're guilty of insincere repentance. And these were Jews who were professing to know Christ were probably in the minority in this church, but they had the appearance of being saved. But actually they weren't because the key terms in verses four and five are interpreted differently to show that they had just appeared to be saved and if they don't go on to salvation but fall away due to trials or temptations and such, their hardness of heart does not enable them to be brought back to genuine repentance and be saved again, but only to join the number of crucifiers publicly disgracing Jesus. Now, my question is why? Why is this a credible interpretation? Because it's the one that I take. And again, godly people, more spiritual than me, smarter than me, take a B and some A, and I'm not gonna deny that, okay? And I shouldn't be a test of fellowship, okay? But um, why do I choose C? And I wanna just give you a few reasons and then we'll go on to our last point. There are other ways to interpret these key terms that we already interpreted, and I wanna go through them with you. Because they, this other interpretation of these terms, which with study can be fairly well proved, are point to an almost but not actual conversion to Christ experienced. In other words, it's not a real Christian, only a pretend Christian a false believer, let's look at them again. Verse four, the word enlightened can be translated as an intellectual or mental perception of biblical truth about Jesus, but not truly being saved in union with Jesus. It's an intellectual perception of biblical spiritual truth, not true salvation. Mental awareness and information, but not spiritual reality. In other words, truth from the neck on up. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now this could mean the word taste here, not experienced as those first two, it could mean or translated sampled, examined, not received or accepted or consumed or lived. Okay, just sampled, not tasted and ingested and digested, but just sampled on a superficial level. Shared in the Holy Spirit, can be translated as having an association, but not with possession, okay? And we have examples of that in the word of God. Um, Simon Magus in Acts chapter eight, he says he was believed and was baptized and Peter had to threaten him to examine his salvation because he wanted to do it for his own glory. And then you have Judas three years with Jesus. Had all the appearances of an apostle, but never truly um, shared in the Holy Spirit. Association, but not possession. Tasted the goodness of the word of God, verse five. They sampled it, pondered, appreciated, even somewhat blessed by it, but did not consume it as containing the message of life in it. You got that with Herod, King Herod. In John chapter six, verse 20, it says he loved to hear the, the John the Baptist preach the word of God, but did Herod, by all appearances, ever yield his life to Christ? No but he liked hearing it. Um, I know a guy, not here, but a guy that reads his Bible every single day as a moral exercise. 
but he's unconverted. Okay, I've studied the Bible, for, I'm with one individual for a year, weekly, in the Gospel of John, in detail, and never yielded their life to Christ. See, tasting is different from eating. That's the idea here. The Pharisees, we know the word of God. Jesus says, the word of God leads to me. If it doesn't lead you to me, then you don't have the word of God. John chapter five. And then we have the powers of the coming age. The, they had seen apostolic signs and wonders. They had tasted them, so to speak, but they didn't receive the author of those miracles. I mean, you think about the religious leaders and how um, they uh, 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 saw Lazarus raised from the dead, right? And then what did they say? You look at John chapter 12, 14 through 19. Look, look at that Jesus guy. The whole world's going after him. We're gonna lose all our power and position. And you read that and you just go, get it. But they didn't get it. Okay, they didn't receive the author of the miracles. And they're unsaved and they're headed for judgment. And, and none of these views really has a good ending, does it? It's all falling away. It's all falling away. They can't start over and be saved whether it's a theoretical argument or a genuine argument. Very, very sobering. Fallen away, fallen away. Am I, am, am I or not? A, am I the first one? I, I don't think you can lose your salvation. Scripture just, the preponderance of verses that say we are secure once we're saved is there. Second one, am I a, 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 a confessing Christian or professing Christian? But um, uh, theoretically I might fall away so I better behave or or seek maturity, I don't wanna belittle that view. And then thirdly, am I appearing as one but not? But none of that's, a, that's not good stuff. You know, most for the most part. Okay, I guess a verse that, that just really kinda speaks to me about this is in 2 Peter chapter two, and verses 20 through 22, about this third view here. Um, if they escaped the corruption of the world by knowing, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, knowing on a superficial level, and are again entangled in the world and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Now I love you, and I know you love me, and this is a difficult passage. Would you grant me that, amen? But you know what? As the Holy Spirit talks to you, we'll leave it at that, amen? And we'll just let the Holy Spirit convince you. Um, this is not something that I, that I want you to feel um, beat up about, but I do want you to feel uh, informed about. And that takes us to uh, a fourth reason why I think this third passage or third interpretation is real, it's because of what we're gonna talk about here in a minute, and that's crop bearing. Crop bearing. So I'm gonna put that aside and go to the last reason, because if you go to verse nine, which we'll talk about next week, nine and following, it says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things, in your case, things that accompany what? Salvation. I guess I didn't put that up there, but in your Bible. So those are things that accompany salvation. And it's said in contrast to verses four through eight. And so, 
How do we make sure that we're growing more spiritually mature? How are we dealing with spiritual immaturity? Okay, it's very clear. We're advancing, we're relying, we're being aware or bewaring of what that word means, falling away. And then last, we need to be observing or observe. Okay, look at verse seven and eight. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed and in the end it will be burned. Okay, the question is this, when it comes to growing spiritually more mature. Do I have spiritual crop fruitfulness or spiritual crop failure? Number one, land, in verse seven. Land is the believer that receives the rain, the gospel message, and produces a useful crop, spiritual fruit and maturity. It receives God's blessing, and, as, and that's obvious to some degree. As Christians, we're all gonna grow at different rates. Jesus has said some will grow 30, 60, some 100 times, but there should be some growth. Would you grant me that? If you're a believer, there should be some growth. We don't need to compare fruit. We don't need to be fruit inspectors of other people's fruit, but there should be some growth, okay? We're not saved by works, but works or fruit or crops are proof that we are saved. Do we observe this in our own life? Now, I'm not talking about morbid self-introspection, you know, but healthy self-examination. Is there increasing fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience. Well, let's leave patience out. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Not perfection, but are we growing in those? Growing in good works? Do we want to grow? That's proof that we're, that we're in uh, Christ. But then verse eight, land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless. In, and that's the land. In danger of being cursed and in the end itself will be burned. The land and the thorns and thistles. This is either a very immature Jewish Christian whose fleshly, self-empowered works are burned up at the believer's judgment, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, or a false believer, someone who was never saved in the first place. Their conversion was false, spurious, unproductive, in a, uh, but appeared like for a while, they appeared as a believer, impersonated a believer, and like like we said, probably a minority here, but some of these Jews in this fellowship who were sliding back because they were in trial and temptation to their former life and soberingly will face etern the eternal judgment of God in the, in the lake of fire. Terrible, 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 dreadful reality for some who once frequented the church. But Jesus says he'll command the angels to gather them up, Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, and throw them in the fire. Well, let me wrap it up with this um, story. So it's a story about D.L. Moody. I've told stories about him before, but he was a famous evangelist, won thousands to Christ in the earlier part of our nation's history. And anyway, um, as the account goes, Moody was once approached by a guy stumbling down a street, totally snot lockered, drunk, you know. I mean, completely polluted, right? And he comes up to Mr. Moody, the evangelist, and says, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts. To which Moody replied, you must be, because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. 
If you can't say amen, say ouch, all right? What's the book of Hebrews all about? It's about maturing in the Christian life. It's about avoiding immaturity in our relationship with Christ. It's about dealing with things that keep us immature and clothing and wrapping ourselves up in the things that help us to mature. And it's also about lovingly, clearly challenging false conversion. The outwardly saved, but the inwardly lost, because we love them, and God loves them. And we need to ask ourselves, what category do I find myself in? Am I growing? I mean, it could be 30 down here, it could be 60, 100. Jesus said it's okay, growth rates differ. Am I growing, or am I immature? I just got inside the door, and that's where I'm staying. Not going in anymore. Or, you know what? Am I outwardly saved, but inwardly lost? I don't see anything showing that I'm a believer. Okay, the bottom line is we won't avoid Titus 1, verse 16. They proclaim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. We don't want to do that. And we're not going to do that, amen? We're just not. The good news is that God will help us no matter which category we fit in. If we're growing, he's going to help us grow some more. If we're immature, he's going to help us break the bonds of immaturity and grow stronger in Christ. And if we're not saved, by repenting of our sin, genuinely, authentically, in our heart, asking Christ to be our Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins, he'll save us and begin that maturation process immediately. One final thought, I want to say this, as your pastor here. And this is not original with me, I I got this from some other guy. He said, it is dangerous not to worry about this warning if your heart is calloused or to worry excessively about it if your heart is tender. Nothing wrong with self-examination and, there's, and, 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 and that's good. But if your heart's tender, you're probably okay. And if your heart is callous, you're probably not okay. And that's where we'll leave it this morning, okay? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the potency of scripture. Thank you that you love us so much you won't leave us where we're at. If we're maturing, you want us to mature more for our blessing and your glory. If we're immature, you want us to examine ourselves and grow more. And if perhaps maybe even we were raised in the church or, or, or we came in on the wings of excitement and and emotion, but we're starting to sour and slip back, you want us to re-up and enlist again into a reality of a true Christian life. Thank you for these truths that challenge and bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.